Hello, bonjour, ni hao. Como estas? This is John James and welcome to Champagne Strategy. This is a red pill business podcast which deconstructs world-class strategy focusing on growth, marketing and sales with just a sprinkling of tech and champagne. Listen to this episode if you dare, but you've been warned, there's no going back. It's easy to make bad decisions with data, he said straight off the bat. In today's tech-infected world, it can seem vogue to tout the fact that you're data-driven. Kind of like it's a badge of honor that provides an air of superiority over the other ill-informed business heathens. But what is data? What isn't data? And are the people who call themselves data-driven actually data-driven underneath? This is something that we had to get to the bottom of. And I came across William Polling after I saw a presentation he published on how cutting brand search advertising for one of Australia's largest insurance conglomerates made absolutely no difference to the business's performance. And this is something that I had also tested personally with client campaigns, but perhaps without the same rigor or scale. So who better to talk to about segmentation and targeting than someone who's literally built out data infrastructure and carried out experiments himself. But apart from that, what really sold me was his background. His PhD centered on hard to measure variables, check. He was a fan of epistemology, check. He's worked with both products, services, and SaaS companies, check again. Large and small businesses, early and late stage, academia, private enterprise, multiple disparate industry sectors, strategic planning, execution, and measurement, check, check, check. So what you're about to hear is a discussion about segmentation and targeting. But to do both well, you really need to have a solid grounding in data analytics. So we talk a lot about how to use data to create value. On the flip side, also how not to use data in a business context. What he says in this interview is so dense, so don't be alarmed if you have to listen to what he says twice or three times. I know I did, even as I was editing these videos. Perhaps though, the biggest takeaway for me from a strategy perspective was how subtle these competitive advantages can be these days. He confirms to me that businesses who are succeeding with growth are increasingly focused on building more certainty into their decision-making process via scientific methods, all of which ultimately rely on data and data analysis. I'm sure you'll enjoy going down this rabbit hole as much as I did. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Willem Pauling. Okay, well, welcome to the show, Willem. Uh, how are you going? Yeah, um, I'm great. Thanks for having me, John. I've been wanting to talk to you for quite a while about this topic, but before we do, we start the talk with uh, sharing a bottle of champagne, preferably, but I don't discriminate, but um, we landed on a particular champagne, which is maybe a bit less usual. So what did we bring on the show today? Um, we brought the... I'm, gonna, I'm going to um, pronounce this really badly. The... <laughs> Canard Duchesne. That's pretty much it. Yeah, Canard Duchesne. Yeah, so it has a little um sort of uh, hat over the e, which means like eh. Yeah, great. I mean, we were saying like Canard means duck, uh, so no ducks in this one, but it's pretty nice. Why don't we open up and give it a try? What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. So we we've got the half bottles here, um, and the thing I love about half bottles is you don't have to drink a whole bottle, which can be. <laughs> disastrous but also these were a good price i don't know what they're doing at the minute but it's quite 
uh, a value by. Yep. <laughs> nice. I love that sound. Yeah. So this house is really interesting. A bit of a later house. It's primarily situated in on the mountain around uh, Reims or Reims, as you pronounce it in France, called the Montagne de Reims. And I've actually been there. And there's all these like little, obviously you're, you're up high, so you can kind of view the really nice scene of the city underneath. But also there's some really small, really high quality producers there um, because obviously they grow a lot of the grapes on the, on the, um, the slopes of the mountain. I mean, you need that sort of elevation facing certain aspects uh, to get the best quality grapes. So yeah, a really nice place. But um, let's, let's have a sip. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, pretty nice. Pretty ripe. Yeah. Okay, so uh, this one is predominantly Pinot. So 80% Pinot, uh, which is an even split between Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier, and 20% Chardonnay. So it's going to be a bit on that sort of drier, more aromatic side. You get most of the grapes from pretty high-quality areas. Uh, a lot of Grand Cru areas, which is like the, the most expensive grapes. Nine grams per litre dosage, and they age it for three years. So, you know, probably uh, a lot more aged than the minimum 1.5 years. Um, yeah, I find it a pretty ripe style when I'm, when I'm drinking it. So you get a bit of that you know, ripe guava fruit or overripe fruit taste coming in, mm. which I find pretty distinctive about this house. So uh, and apart from that, like half bottles are really good for wine because they age twice as fast. So if you ever buy half bottles of, of red wine or whatever, um, it's it's pretty popular with people who are a bit more impatient, uh, of which I am one. So <laughs> there you go. Um, and I think the house was, it was started by Victor Canard and Leonie Duchesne in 1868, who created the the house Canard Duchesne. So again, uh, it's a portmanteau of their two uh, two names. There you go. Yeah, perfect. Okay, but anyway, today uh, we're talking about specifically data targeting and segmentation. So I'm going to sort of wrap them all into one because the data is more from the market analysis side of the piece that then flows into decisions you make around segmentation of the market and then which segments to target. Um, so obviously the they can't be really separated from one another. So really interested to hear what you have to say about that. So before we do that, though, the reason I'm talking to you is because of your history doing this uh, with a couple of very large and I would say innovative companies who are sort of at the top of their game in this area. So give us a quick little overview of, of your career progression. So I came to full-time work pretty late in the piece. I did a lot of study. So I did design degrees. I did research masters. I did a PhD in cultural research. Since I was quite young, I was a computer programmer. Um, and so sort of blended those things of design and understanding people, culture, and the technical side from, from being a programmer into um, web analytics and marketing analytics and so on. So that's kind of where I landed. I don't think many people go out with the intent of getting in that field. I did that. Um, the first big place I did that was at Foxtel. And um, so that, that was that was really interesting with you know a lot of online targeting and, and personalization and um, sort of delivering um, customized offers to people. And, and just in so case on. people don't understand, like Foxtel is kind of like the AT and T of the cable networks in in America, almost. Yeah, it's a it's a big traditional subscription TV provider. Yep. And and at Foxtel as well, we brought the the search and programmatic function in house, so we got a real understanding of digital marketing, programmatic marketing, and you know, applying targeting directly, which we'll talk about, about a bit more later. Um, from there, I went to IAG. Um, some similar components, brought search and programmatic in-house again, ran all of media for a time, and then moved into running customer analytics, running a data science team, 
Um, so did that for a couple of years, did segmentation, um, a lot of predictive modeling and so on. More recently, I was at Woolworths at Cartology, which is a uh, retail media company. So they provide media products to Woolworths suppliers. And um, just very recently, I've joined Luxury Escapes as uh, director of personalization and customer experience. Very nice. I like it. Um, okay, well, we're talking to the right person then. Um, I like that experience you've got over very, I would say, diverse sector. So this would be interesting. But yeah, I think the main takeaway for me is that um, you've got that uh, statistical and analysis background from the research stage, which I think is, is really critical, especially that, you know, avoiding forms of bias and being maybe some rigor around, you know, data collection analysis methods, replicable and, and valid, um, which yeah. is sometimes pretty hard to get. Yeah, absolutely. It's easy to make bad decisions with data. I see it all the time. So, <laughs> I, I mean, that's my first question. Like, what is data? So I, I was in cultural research where, it's right at the opposite end of the spectrum from, say, the hard sciences like maths and physics. And so the data for, for my PhD was, was interviews and observations and, um, and you know, firsthand understanding and, and collecting media and so on. It wasn't data that produced hard numbers. And so, um, you know, that's probably not what we think about in a corporate context when we talk about data. But I think it's useful because, you know, data is data's a pretty generic term. Data is sort of anything that tells you something about, about something else. Um, so, so I think, and, and this will come through a lot, you know, it's really important not to be generic and to talk about what data you're actually, what data is actually important um, and to, to be more specific so that you can actually, you know, do what what you genuinely intend to do and make sure that that's useful. Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the big takeaway for me and something I hear a lot because uh, I work a lot in services and tech and in tech, there seems to be this sort of badge of honor. I'm data-driven. You're either data-driven, you're not. And I'm like, okay, well, that's cool. What kind of data? So what isn't data or what does data get confused with, do you think? I don't think... It, <laughs> I, I personally wouldn't say that anything isn't data. Like everything is something that you can make some kind of observation from. At its core, being data-driven doesn't really mean anything. It, like the data doesn't tell you what to do. Like being data-driven means you've got a story based on some data that that is behind the decisions that you make. Having a better understanding of what is a good data-driven decision and what is a bad data-driven decision and the sort of hierarchy of truth in different forms of data that's what's really important. I think it, it's something that um, it's something that's really interesting and came up during my PhD, which is there's there's this whole field of epistemology, which is how you come to produce knowledge. And you know there are fields in in which you come to produce knowledge and it's absolute and it's true and it's true forever. Um, and there are fields in which that's much much harder to do, and the knowledge you produce is much much more likely to turn out to be wrong a month a year two years 50 years 100 years down the track and having a better understanding of that and where a source of knowledge fits in that in that hierarchy is what you really need to do if you want to make i mean let's call it scientific decision making of understanding the value of the the evidence that's behind your decisions yeah i mean some of the things i've noticed is that um a lot of people that say they're data driven generally aren't um it's there's this sort of um 
badge of honor or data driven versus opinion driven. And I see in business all the time opinions making bad decisions, but also on the flip side, they can make better decisions than people who have called themselves data driven because um, they have their own sort of, you know, biases as well, like enveloped into this this persona. The one thing I wanted to, I saw recently was this this model, DIKW, I think it was data knowledge, insight, wisdom, I think is the thing. And it's like this pyramid. And, um, you know, data's right down the bottom <laughs> as like, you know, the biggest amount of information. And then the important thing is to then turn that into knowledge, um, like things that we know. And then how can I use that to create insights that are then actionable? Um, and that's when you use your experience to tap into for that wisdom, as in, okay, now I know what to do with those insights that's come from the knowledge that's come from data. Mm -hmm. And I would argue like you being on that W side at the top of that pyramid, perhaps a bit more valuable than being down the bottom. What would you say to that? Yes, but I'll add a slight nuance to it. I, I think that kind of maps the, the path from, you know, seeing a lot of things like that. If you talk about data, there's just a mess. Like you can, you can find data to say whatever you want and you've got to be really smart to work out, you know, if you can say whatever you want, you've got to, it's really hard to then work out what is the right thing to say. But if you are deliberate about producing data, if you run a randomized controlled experiment, which doesn't work for everything, it works for a small subset of problems, then you can produce data which tells you exactly what you do because, because you design the experiment to produce data to tell you exactly what to do. That only works for a subset of, of problems. Though. So I would say there's that dimension which sits outside that, um, that kind of DKIW that that's where you've got this hierarchy in, in science where they talk about you know, having an opinion through to running a randomized controlled trial through to assessing the results of hundreds of randomized controlled trials. And you know, that's another sort of hierarchy of, of knowledge and the value of different, different types of knowledge um, that, that's also useful. But it's interesting that DKIW hierarchy in that there are so many problems that you can't apply science to where having a broad understanding and being able to connect, connect lots of different sources of data and knowledge in your head and to be able to come up with something that makes sense and to be able to link it to, to, be able to, link it to the experiences of other companies and, and, and so on, um, where that's incredibly valuable. And that's also valuable in terms of where you actually can run experiments because you, you're only going to be able to experiment with a small number of things. And, you know, it's going to be much more valuable if you come up with the right things to test. Obviously, most people have existing businesses um, and they have some data. Maybe it's a sample data in the category. Um, and there's a lot of talk about category creation. The EBI, Ehrenberg Bass, they talk about categories quite a lot, product categories or within your category. But my question to you is like, is there still human bias and like how you define a category per se? What would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, how you define a category is totally arbitrary. You think about something like cars and, you know, you, you, could, you can set the bounds in so many different places. So it could be everyone who has a car. Um, and there, there are probably some pretty obvious categories like, like utes. Um, you know, they're pretty standard. Um, but then if you go to a family car, you know, you're talking about everything from large SUVs to sedans and they're, and they're all very different. And so you could very easily and defensively take the position that your target market is all the family sedans, or you could take, you could take the position that it's a bit bigger than that. 
Um, it's interesting when you walk down the aisle of a supermarket and, um, and you know, in something like bread, um, you know, is, is it every bread in the shop? Is it just the, the packaged bread um, that, you know, costs between 3 to $5 because that's your target market? Is it raisin um, bread? Is it flat bread, you know, to go into wraps? Yeah. Is it... Um... Is it is it lettuce? You know, is your competitor yeah. two slices of lettuce? So the non-carb people, how you're competing with that category? Like it's endless, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's gluten-free, it's own category. You can put a, I mean, that's the kind of thing where you've got to put a bit of a bit of thought rigor into where you define the category and why you've defined it and be comfortable with it yourself. And also probably be ready to redefine it if you if you get evidence later that suggests that it's wrong. Yeah, I mean, I find the same, um, but it's even worse in services and especially um, SaaS because you might have a software package. Um, let's take Canva, for example. Um, I think it's a good example because they started with a very basic sort of 2D designer for, you know, I would say just layered images, rasterized images, um, which is, you know, images that can consist of pixels uh, for the non-design people listening. Um, and, you know, you would layer things on. They have t- templates, like some fonts, and then then they sort of introduce vectored fonts, and then they just do PNGs, transparent backgrounds. And then, you know, now they're morphing into, I would say, PDFs and prints. There's a whole prints function, and it's like, where are they stopping? And if you go, oh, what does Canva do? What category are they in? It becomes a lot harder to, to talk about what they are because there's just so many different use cases, and they're expanding all the time. So... Um, you know, for me, you know, what is their target market? Is it is it everyone who used uh, Adobe Photoshop or is it Illustrator as well as, you know, the rest of it? Is it just online sort of scrappy or is it professional design um, that needs, you know, high quality outputs? Like it's constantly shifting. So um, I find the software, it's even harder to define target markets. But I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It depends as well on then what you do with it because if you've defined your target market, really specifically then you know if you're at that strategy stage you want to try to find some source where you can say these are all the people and this is how many there are and this is how many spend on that and and so on it's probably the case that it's useful to have a pretty good idea of what what it is but it's not that important to get too hung up over you know whether something's in or out okay and what about preceding the target market phase because obviously that's when you're picking uh, i would argue a segment whether that's the whole market or a large portion or a very niche portion of your entire tam um before we get to that there's different ways you can slice and dice the market so perhaps if off the top of your head like you know what what is segmentation or this process of segmentation how would you define segmentation you have to explain it to somebody um it can be all sorts of things so i mean it's it's a bit like data in that it's it's so broad that um, that it's kind of a troubling label, and you end up in this you end up in this situation where like in a big company someone will make a segmentation, and then you know someone else will make a segmentation solving two totally different problems, and because they're both labeled segmentation, there'll be some kind of conflict over who's responsible for segmentation. So I think, you know, at, at the core, it's just choosing, you know, grouping people into things where they, they have something in common to go, you know, this is a group of people um, with these characteristics that, that are interesting. There's not a lot of argument or people misinterpreting uh, what some of the empirical science says around 
uh, around this process. But um, if we had to slice and dice the market up, I mean, what are the different approaches uh, that you've noticed, and, and is there any favorites? Yeah, so so there's there's a lot of ways to do it, right? Um, there's there's kind of big there's four big main ways of um, you know, geographic segmentation, demographic segmentation, um, psychographic segmentation, behavioral segmentation. Um, and they're all useful for very different things. And they're all possible with very different data sets. And so, so you know, one of the most pragmatic things, and, and I think what you'll see from, from the the you know, big sort of standard segmentation libraries that you can buy, like, um, you know, Experian Mosaic, Nielsen Personas, um, Helix Personas, and, and, and so on. Um, they start with census data. And so census data is based on geography down to a mesh block, which is roughly a city block. And, um, and so then, so then what they'll do is they'll, you know, understand all the traits of, you know, they'll group people and group them at a mesh block level and they'll understand all those traits of people based on the census. And then they may conduct surveys to overlay um, behavioral or psychographic traits over the top of that. Whereas you can also start the other way around and you're going to have a much richer psychographic segmentation. You know, if you want, want to understand what people really care about, what their needs are and so on, then you ask people what their needs are and then you group them based on that. But then what you're going to find is that they're much less correlated to the data that you have from the census, for example. So you can't use the census to predict people's needs. Um, and, and at the same time, you don't have anything like the coverage that you have of the census in the wants and needs. So, so there are different types of segmentation useful for different problems. So that kind of... Um, you know, psychographic or, or you know, behavioral segmentation where you really understand um, a depth of how people think about their world and so on. Um, very useful for product strategy and understanding how you can fit into people's lives and so on. Um, much less useful for buying media because you can't find those people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were talking about this the other day, weren't we? It was like um, a lot of the sort of, I would say, traditional mass media is sold still in demographics, um, very basic. It's like, you know, what's your five or 10 year age cohort, male, female, that's about it. Um, and then, you know, you need to layer on everything else. So it doesn't, you can't sort of target much else by default. Um, whereas I, I think Facebook and some of the digital systems are completely the other way around. Um, they're more powerful in their interest groups. Um, so sort of topic interests and that's, that's sometimes their strength, you know, based on digital signals like browsing history or liking or consuming certain, you know, categories of, of content uh, as they surf around the internet. So um, it sort of drops you into what we call interest buckets. Um, and then that, that way is like, it means that person's perhaps more qualified than, um, uh, than someone else who, you know, doesn't have that data. Um, and, you know, a lot of small business marketing has been, and smaller brands uh, have been built in that last 10 years. Um, they had an edge to compete at low cost, very targeted ways. And I suppose this is the thing that I, I, I wanted to ask you next is around, you know, this trade-off between being really clear about who you're targeting and who's buying your product um, and targeting very niche or hyper-targeting um, certain people and the, the growth trade-off with that, which is that, yeah, sure, you can do it for low cost. Um, it's very efficient use of funds and you get, get to exactly who you want to get to. Um, but then are you eliminating 
your entire growth um and are you targeting people that are that are too into your product and um maybe you should go a bit broader into people who maybe infrequently use your product or or less enamored with your product um versus i suppose the other side which is no go broad be okay with lots of wastage which you know easier said than done when you when you have a big budget and you're a big brand but um i, I find sort of that that's the two ends of the conundrum um what do you think about this whole hyper targeting versus broad targeting argument i think the, the place to start with that is actually the understanding the category so most of the brands that advertise on on television and in outdoor and so on they've got they've got a an addressable market that's of a scale that buying mass media means that you have very little wastage and so so i often use insurance as the example for this where in general insurance you're selling car insurance and home insurance and your target market is people with cars and people with houses or people who might have a car or a house in the future. And so your wastage on TV is very, very small and there's not a lot of point in putting effort into reducing that wastage. Like you, the best thing to do is just go for everyone in TV, outdoor, radio and so on. So it must be much and easier to plan media then if you're a media planner, just like, you know, nothing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, then, then it's about efficiency. It's yeah. about, you know, wastage is um is the cost, you know, cost is, per like cpm basically yeah wastage is um it's cpms but it's also ad fraud and inventory quality and all these things it's you know it's about um attention and um you know it's, it's you know we've seen a lot from karen nelson field recently about the importance of attention who would have and, known um, you actually have to pay attention to an ad for it to work like geez this that's is revolutionary that's, that's right <laughs> oh my so, god so so that's one side of it right yeah. but there's a whole lot of companies um, who have a much smaller share of the market. And the example I use here often is, is road cycling. So I'm a road cyclist and I spend a stupid amount of money on buying kit and buying upgrades to my bike and, um, you know, replacing a little bag on the back and all, all sorts of things. And you can't advertise that on TV. The wastage is 99% or more. And so these platforms like, like Facebook, um, they're platforms where you can actually find people in that category and where advertising was previously unviable, where you would have had to otherwise, you know, it, where otherwise it would be about having a physical presence or showing up at trade shows or showing up at events. It would be, you know, putting yourself in proximity to cycling news and, and, and so on. Um, prior you know previously that just wasn't possible so it's this kind of making media possible for small for smaller um, markets i think that's that's where there's a clear opportunity i think where the where the debate is um and and here um i'll, I'll go through the example first before taking sides um, the the i think where the debate is is the idea that that hyper-targeted marketing should make marketing more efficient for big companies where you actually need to target pretty much the whole market. Like if you're selling Coke or you're selling um, bread or you're selling insurance or you're, you're a general bank or something like that. And there it's much less clear because there, you know, the hyper-targeting would only work if 
the strength of one message resonating with an individual is strong enough that it justifies the cost, the cost increase of, of doing hyper-targeting. And I've not seen much evidence to suggest that that that's a, a valuable tactic. You know, one thing um, that caught my eye very early on um, was a piece that you did when you're working for, for a former firm in the insurance industry. And you did this, You were, I think you were implementing at the time a, a sort of a data collection attribution model. You were spending a lot of money on Google search ads for, for this product category. And then you basically used suppression testing to prove that there was no uplift whatsoever definitively from a significant amount of expenditure on, on that channel. Um, so um, I found that interesting. Um, so in that case, I mean, we're using a medium um, to target people. I would argue, depends how you set it up, but in that sort of purchase phase, and I was just interested to, to see that that didn't work in your category in terms of acquisition. Is, is that what happened? Or? This was very specific. And, and this is a really interesting problem in media and, and for attribution, which is, it was specifically brand search. So a lot of money goes to buying your brand term. So, so if, you're, if you're working, you know, say you're a bank um, and people are searching for Commonwealth Bank, you can bid to win that click when you're also the first organic result and when the person's intent is clearly to go to your website. And, um, and so it's, it's a category of spend that a lot of marketers resent. Um, because because they don't feel like they should have to pay for it. But it's something that on standard attribution models looks incredible because, of course, the people are saying, I want to go to Commonwealth Bank, end up buying stuff from Commonwealth Bank. Um, and and so we ran an experiment, which was, was basically to, to turn it on and off by day. We knew that the time between click and purchase generally happened the same day. And so we're able to turn it on and off and, and see if it made a difference. And it was a significant portion of the budget. And we found that it didn't make a difference. So this wasn't all paid search. So it wasn't people searching for car insurance. It was people searching for, um, you know, for that specific brand. Because um, I think that the reason a lot of brands do this is um, they see the competitors start to hijack that qualified traffic. So if I'm a small challenger brand and one of the easiest ways is instead of bidding on the, the words of like, um, you know, car insurance, which is, you know, $30, $50 a click sometimes, uh, the easy way to do it is just to target a competitor who's bigger than you uh, in the insurance or car insurance game and just bid on their name um, so that when a portion of their market searches for the brand, their ad appears instead and people go, oh, actually, uh, you know, those, those guys look a bit cheaper, I might go with them. And, you know, when the the bigger brand sees that, the executive sees that, oh, why, is, why is someone else appearing when, you know, they're teaching a brand name, we can't, we're going to have that there. That's that's where it comes from. It, um, but so, so you're saying that that makes no difference? Or? It, well, what I would say is that's, that's an area where you can run an experiment and find out. So, so all the times that I've done it, and I've done it at more than one company, it's made no difference. But I wouldn't recommend that you just go and turn it off. Um, I'd recommend that you, you run the experiment. Turn it, or, you know, a really crude experiment would be to turn it off and see if you see any noticeable difference. Um, but, but don't just assume that someone else's results apply to you. Um, okay, especially maybe... It's a, it's a good place to... Especially maybe if you're, to start trying. if you're in a smaller market as well with maybe no clear leader and they're sort of all pretty even Stevens uh, competitors and it's a new category maybe. Um, consumers are a bit less swayed by brand effects maybe. Well, I mean, the, the thing here is it's not really a brand effect. So 
it's it's someone if if you to think about advertising more broadly the um people typing in a brand term into google they're using google like a um like navigation mm. you know they they would be typing commonwealthbank.com.au they type commonwealth bank and they know that it's going to come up first on google they click it and so that's most of so it's more about just there. trying to find out the web address as opposed to anything exactly. else okay i get yeah, it. Yeah. okay and and so for those small brands who are trying to divert them it's very hard to divert someone who's trying to go there it's even annoying for your ad to show up and the second thing is google are really smart about this and they they have a thing called quality score which makes it harder yeah. and more expensive for other brands to show up there um so it doesn't end up being a good tactic for for anyone it ends up being great for google there was one incredibly interesting anomaly to that experiment which was um which was that we did see a lift in phone sales and so what we believe the reason was was that that google search on mobile can get people to the phones um quicker than if they go via the websites to the phones and so the likelihood of someone converting when they call up the people are less likely to hang up a phone call like put the agent on hold and open up another call than they are to just open up another tab and check out another another supplier and so that was a, a interesting you know, really unexpected um anomaly okay great so we've we've got our data um we've done our segmentation and we want to make sure it's probably valid and i think this is where the argument comes in around you know segmentation versus going broad it's like well um, and I think people misinterpret what Byron Sharp says about this. Um, he's like, well, it's not about whether to segment or not. It's more about is the segment valid um, or not to, to your product category and your offering. Um, and I think what happens, and I want to talk to you about this, is um, there's this sort of persona thing where people um, might go to a marketing agency or management consulting firm and they'll just take some data, segment it up however they want with no real structured scientific process group them into these fictitious segments and then plaster this like fake persona as as the representation for that segment like you know sally's a 30 40 year old working professional with you know one dog and likes to drink coffee on the weekends and um there's this funny meme that goes around like that's a sort of counter argument to this the the fallacy in, in, in doing this and that's like Ozzy Osbourne I think um, Prince Charles side by side who were born in exactly the same year and who could be grouped in the exact same segment yet are like light years apart in terms of their lifestyle and interests for example um, which is pretty funny but um, what do you think about this whole you know convenience segmenting and putting a persona on top which is very popular by the way in America with a lot of the management consulting firms I think I think there's some value in it but I think the starting point that you really need to understand is that the personas are made up. Like someone just made them up. Like they sat down in the room and they said, what about someone like this? And, um, and I, I think it's useful because I think to a degree. So I think it's useful for one thing, which is that I think it's way too common, particularly in a big corporate where you're doing, you know, where functions are more and more specialized and it's very easy to lose sight of who the customer actually is and to actually understand, you know, who you're connecting to in, in an ad or, or something like that. And, and like, to, to the point that, you know, I used to say, you know, imagine that you're a person and, and you're a person going about your life, watching some ads, um, going to some websites, um, 
you know, buying some products. And I mean, that's, it's a fascinating one because, you know, the, the, where it comes up most often is, it comes up so often that people say, how many display ads do you have to see to be primed to search? It's like, well, you're a person. How many display ads did you see last time before you were primed to search? And they, they didn't and they never have, and that doesn't happen. So in that sense, they can be useful for grounding your thought to go, you know, here's some types of people. Imagine you're this person, you know, put yourself in someone's shoes. I think what, what often happens though is as with many types of segmentation, the, it's not, uh, it's not understood in terms of here's the specific problem and segmentation is this specific answer. Like the bounds of the problem aren't well understood. And so these things like personas go, oh, our personas are great. Um, can we tag our whole customer base with the personas so we can understand whether we need to treat each individual as, uh, as this persona or this persona or this persona? And the answer to that should be a really quick no. Um, if you're a consultant, you don't generally give many no's and, um, you know, you can probably make a bit of money about out of, out of, you know, sending that to the data team and they'll find a way to make the answer yes. Um, and so, you know, I think that's where you end up with, with pretty poor usage of personas where you take what's basically, um, some made up characters and then try to shoehorn everyone in your customer base into these made up characters. Yeah, I think I agree with you there. Um, I, I think they're like, from a scientific perspective, like they're useless and invalid, but I think from a political perspective and trying to get buy-in internally, which you need to execute a lot of these campaigns, right? Um, you need to humanize and try and explain that um, there is in, innate heterogeneity in the market. Otherwise, I think by default, everyone just views the market as this like, one hole that magically are so enamored with your product they won't consider anybody else's you know product in the category because you're so good and you know our customers are awesome and they're completely loyal to us but i think hidden in that argument sometimes is the breakdown of like well some purchase often some don't some like us some hate us some still buy us even though they hate us for people that are maybe like you said other departments that are completely disconnected from the i would say frontline contact uh with customers customer service frontline purchasing marketing and sales are probably the most exposed a lot of the other functions aren't so there is this sort of disconnect i would say between that sort of human side of the people who support the whole business and i find the personas can be useful for those people but completely invalid at the same time <laughs> i think probably there's also a level the areas you were just talking about sort of align more to corporate strategy at like the highest level of strategy. I think there's probably a level of strategy like customer experience strategy and product strategy where it helps people to frame their thinking a bit to, to go, okay, I'll go into, you know, dog walking 40 year old uh, mode and I'll think about what that person might want. And that's very different to what I want. Useful in that sense, but yeah, I mean, invalid, made up recognize they're invalid and made up and don't try to don't try to extend them to something else. okay and um, and do you like do you need to do it i mean we've kind of just discussed this there is an argument that you know you should segment or what's the point it's old school you know um the new term is now cohorts if you're looking at a like a post-purchase analysis a lot of finance people then you know do cohort analyses on you know the clv or you know how much it costs to acquire some of those customers or how they came into us and split it up that way for internal decision-making. But, um, you know, do you think you even need to do segmentation or, or not? Um, I think there are lots of problems where the answer is segmentation. I, I don't think that, you know, if a company's not 
doing segmentation, they're, you know, they're a B-grade company. I think if if you know that you don't have any problems where the answer is segmentation, then then fine. There are lots of problems where you go, you can you have some kind of engagement with the customer. You know, they turn up in a store, they come to your website, they request a quote or something like that. And in these engagements, you could you could deliver the same thing to everyone, or you can deliver different things to different people. You know, at the crudest level, it's the same thing for everyone. At the the most highly segmented level, it's the same, you know, a different thing for every individual. And there's lots of cases where there's something in between where it's I've got five things to choose from and I want to know which group of people I I choose this, which group of people I choose this, and so on. And that's a pretty common problem where the answer is segmentation. So I think it's there are there are lots of problems like that where where segmentation is useful. Yeah, obviously it comes up in marketing a lot where they go, oh, we don't have this unlimited budget, so let's like target this like segment for whatever reason it is, and you know there'll be a more, a more efficient use of the budget because you know there's a resource constraint there. So I find sometimes it's predicated on the fact that um, there is a constraint with resources as opposed to a valid need to segment the market. Um, and and you know vice versa, you might have different product managers or they want to push it particular product that you know appeals to a portion of their entire market so let's do a separate campaign on you know targeting that so that's where i feel it comes from it's more of an inner thing rather than an external thing and my argument is that like customers don't view themselves as a segment they're just using the product to fulfill some kind of perceived need at the time and willing to exchange money to in order to do that so you know they don't group themselves in markets i think the problem you described of there's there's actually sort of both ends of the spectrum of that problem there there are people who are like, I need to segment because I've got a limited budget, so I need to target a small subset of the people. There are, there's also the opposite where it's like, I've got a near unlimited budget and I can reach the entire population of the country and I need to segment because it'll make my marketing more interesting. <laughs> and so then they end, up in, they end up in this position of, of you know, needing, to, needing to deliver more ads and, and more content and all these kind of things to create um, different versions of, of your comms messaging to um, to deliver to different segments. And um, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting it happens at both ends. Okay, um, one thing I really want to ask you as well is, um, and I have an opinion on this, pretty strong opinion, but like what do you think of these labels like Generation X, Y, Z, Millennials, etc.? Is there any validity to, to them or not? I think there is. I think you can, you can break these things down. It's, it's very easy to... For me, in my head, it goes straight to sort of positivism and kind of the end of positivism. Like, can you say things about stuff? I think you can say things about stuff and there are tendencies of a generation to have particular characteristics and there's going to be exceptions to that and it might even be 30% of the people, but it's still meaningful to talk about them as, as a group of people. And so I think it's important to recognise that, but it's also important to, to recognise the, the nuance of it and to kind of say... You know, if you're talking about Gen X and giving them some some characteristics, that doesn't mean that any individual within that is going to have those characteristics. But I'll, I've more and more, and this is this is more recently because my PhD was all sort of anti-positivist of you can't say anything, truth does not exist. Um, but more and more recently, it's like it's it's the kind of harder but more useful thing to do to say you know these kind of meta objects. You know they do exist, and you can describe them, and they are useful. 
And so um, 10 years ago, I would have said no. Now I'd say yes, they're, they're meaningful. It's funny because um, they say, you know, you're a product of, of your time. And I think that's very true. Um, you know, someone growing up with certain, you know, environmental effects at a particular time period, let's say it's one to five years or two years or even one year, if you're exposed to that versus someone who hasn't been in that stage of your life exposed to that, you're going to, it's probably going to affect you later down the track in terms of maybe some of your, um, the way you view things or your opinions on certain topics, for example, um, versus like, someone that hasn't experienced that at that age um, throughout their life cycle. So uh, I can see it has validity. I think like the arbitrary grouping though into these 10 or 20 year cohorts, like yeah, I think I officially fall in the millennials, like on the very tail end of it. Um, but again, like someone that's like you know, 10 years younger than me, I have nothing in common with them you know what i mean like and to to label me that and, and pretend that i'm the same as that person is, is is i would argue like very strange um i think yeah. i think as an individual the label is really uncomfortable but if you if you think of a seven year old looking at you and someone 10 years younger than you they're like oh yeah i know how to interact with those types it's like it's like, I've, I've learned how to do that it's like 20 to 40 year olds i can work with that I wanted you to maybe galvanize maybe the hallmarks of, of a data and analysis team on the sort of you know, customer or marketing side of it who are quite junior and perhaps don't know as much as someone who's a bit more senior and will make some missteps and maybe describe what's sort of happening with them, their ethos, their approach, and maybe the mistakes they'll make without knowing. And then on the other side, you know, a very mature organizational team, very senior, very much aware of of structure and process and, and the failings with with this kind of area. Can you describe both and maybe use some examples on, on both? I think there's two there's two sort of lenses to that. Like one's junior because of being inexperienced and you know making the wrong decisions because you're inexperienced and you just don't see stuff. And I mean some classic examples of that are piling all your money into retargeting and branded search because they look like they perform the best when um, you know, actually they perform the best because you're only targeting people who already want to buy your product, you know, because they're going to buy your product at a higher rate than people who don't want to buy your product. So there's all sorts of things like that that are just kind of naivety. I think the more interesting dimension is thinking about, like, what's the role of a team that's producing reports for marketing? Um, because you can, you, you, your role, you, you can be tasked with showcasing the campaign of, painting the results of the campaign in the best possible light to communicate how well your team has done to the rest of the business uh, agencies and i think <coughs> internal teams yeah, well, too, yeah. every, it, it's i think that's the in in big organizations i think that's the dominant mode of, of doing well this is this is my argument is like what internal team wants to represent lower numbers that look worse or sound worse at face value than they actually are i mean no one so i think it's in their yeah. own personal interest and collective interest within the department to make things look better than it actually is yeah it's a very mature organization that can be honest about it because there's there's significant like in in trying to produce the most honest results possible and in producing results in a way where the correct answer could be we shouldn't do that again um, you leave yourself you leave, you leave yourself incredibly vulnerable in any political organization to someone just going you know 
you screwed up and you should lose control of that or you screwed up and you should lose your job or, or whatever. Well, it's funny you say and that so, because, um, sorry to interrupt, but uh, Yaniv, who I had on season two, he, um, he was working at Google at the time and um, he was running this project, right? Because, you know, everyone runs projects for different things and he goes to, you know, the big wigs, you know, in Mountain View and everywhere around the world, plugged in and he was the guy presenting the results from the project and he's like, Actually, guys, I recommend we stop this project and mothball it because, and here's why, and um, explained the whole thing. And I went, oh, if only everybody in the organization said that, that's great. Now we can scrap that and move on. So I think there was that culture where, you know, that sort of um, very less political atmosphere existed. Maybe it doesn't always in all departments, but like that was one example of maybe the opposite. And like I would argue maybe some more modern organizations like, you know, uh, SpaceX or Tesla very much in that, you know, whatever works for the company works and politics aside, Amazon perhaps as well. Um, and I find it's like the hallmark of the highest growing organizations to like really limit that political influence. But anyway, that's that's my observation. So. Uh, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. It's how people are incentivized. It's like yeah. If you, you, you can you can create the incentives and I think your, your Tesla and SpaceX and, and Amazon and so on do a really good job of this. You can structure incentives in a way that the interest of any individual employee, like the, the best way that they can make a whole lot more money is to grow the company. And so everyone's interest is to, to grow the company. Or you can structure your incentives in a way that the, the best way to make more money is to build your team and um, gain control of a bigger section of the organization. And I think many sort of established corporates, um, you know, it, it is the case that the, the best way to succeed, you know, you're not incentivized through shares and the shares aren't a growth stock, they're a dividend stock. And so, so you, it's very difficult to set everyone, everyone up in a way that um, the long-term growth of the company is what they're primarily motivated by financially. And so, um, you know, I think that's a huge advantage that these kind of younger um, tech companies have and, and that they've got leaders who, you know, who really are, who have done their time in corporate and then really thought about it, like Bezos and, and Musk, that really, really thought about it. They didn't really, they didn't really like it and they were wondering why, you know, as a really, really smart person, everyone ignores me, um, and and um, and you know they set up their culture to to deal with that. And, yeah, no, it's funny that um that happened recently. Uh, there was a bit of a discussion about this about you know working for private equity, and there was this funny meme. I think I posted about it on LinkedIn the other day um, about you know working in corporate is great, but you know I have to think under your breath every time you're in a situation like this sounds so stupid, but I've got to do it anyway and toe the line um, versus um, because, you know, if you, if you speak up about it, you, you'll get fired or put someone off. Um, so there's a lot of projects that just happen because, you know, for political reasons. Um, but yeah, look, uh, you were describing the other day about like maybe a project that they did a lot of work on that um, didn't produce the results um, that you expected in implementation. And Perhaps, um, is there any learnings from that or can you talk about that, that project? Or? So we produced what I'd call a, you know, a psychographic segmentation. So based on surveys, based on understanding how people feel about themselves and how they feel about their lives. Um, and I think it's, it's, I think there are a few things going on. There were some 
there were some new functions established to you know understand customer behavior and and you know very strong data science capability established and so this was a pro- this was a segmentation project which started with we need to do segmentation you know, there wasn't a clear <laughs> obvious um, 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 use case and um, problem number one <laughs> problem number one and um, and so then so then you know, you end up with this segmentation that's that's built on a sample of you know ten twenty fifty thousand people and their kind of responses to some pretty detailed questions. And it's really interesting. And, you know, you, you see a, a level of understanding that you have about people that you don't get from any other segmentation. And in thinking about, in thinking about your, your products or, um, or thinking about how you understand Australia or, or you know, whatever market you, you're running this in, you get a much, much deeper understanding but then very quickly, you know, even, even when the people who do, do it are kind of, kind of out there saying, hey, um, this really only works for strategy. You know, it, that, that's what, because we don't have the data that can predict which segment you fall into. Um, and, but then very quickly, everyone's mind, you know, in a big organisation, people are looking for how they can activate it. And business strategy is quite a, high order, high intelligence function where, you know, to be honest, not everyone can, can do that. And so, you know, it works for that subset of people. And I know how to engage with this. There's a whole lot of other people who understand much more direct engagement with customers and like, oh, how can I, I can apply it if I can understand which segment a customer's in and build some different messages for them. And so, so it, it sort of developed a reputation as, as having, um, it's not being that useful, not being that actionable because, um, you know, people who are less strategic can't see how they can apply it because they see this direct one-to-one. If I know this customer is this segment, this is how I'll treat them. And so, um, you know, what went from, you know, a, a, you know, a pretty smart project um, sort of languished to the point that, you know, because it's because they're trying to use it for things beyond what it can be used for, um, you know, beyond the sort of subset of problems that it can solve, um, it starts to develop a pretty poor reputation throughout the business. Okay, so interesting. So, you know, obviously, why are you doing segmentation in the first place? Have a good answer for that before you, you know, invest a lot of money in a, in a project. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was... and, and if you are, if you are doing it, because I mean, I think I think there are absolutely cases where where people are doing segmentation to be able to sort of announce something to the market, like look at our incredible data science capability and our incredible customer understanding, and that's going to be a key strength for it. And it, the market announcement is the most important thing. It reminds me of um, every um, you know faux industry report that ebook download that I've ever got. It's always some lame, convenient sort of segmentation that plays into the the company's narrative. That's like no validity to it whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe that's where it comes from. Um, yeah. But you were trying to describe the other day um, just before we're talking um, about you know someone who's a bit more junior maybe naive or um not always with malice but just that's a product of the environment they're in and then perhaps on the other side really mature organization that's doing this analysis 
maybe teams that were a bit more junior or unaware of their inexperience and then perhaps on the other end of the spectrum someone's doing this very very well um, i want you to describe what that looks like what the process is uh example when i see teams being really data driven i find they in the tech industry as well they tend to have a preponderance for convenient data from digital analytics programs that they're harvesting but they'll refrain um, sometimes because the teams are a bit introverted from doing primary data collection in-depth qualitative interviews you know which you mentioned a lot in your, your phd um and mixing you know the the benefits and uh sort of pros and cons of different data collection methods and getting a bit more of a holistic view of actually what's happening and why it's happening as opposed to just watching people interact with an app and they, they click here and go there and making an assumption as to why that is the case um so there's you obviously when i studied micro research and worked in it there's a lot of failure points that unless you're experienced and aware of can a um collect data that's you know not valid <laughs> um and b you know you'll make insights from that that are again erroneous so um can you maybe explain some of those pitfalls and what someone who's aware of that would would be doing to mitigate that risk yeah it, it reminds me of this anecdote i heard when i was studying design which was um someone someone who worked at a, a creative shop talking about um talking about you know someone sitting in the office saying you know i need a photo of a bus where do i get a photo of a bus and they're, they're searching for photos of buses and you know meanwhile outside the window you know buses going past going past going past they've got a camera right on the desk um and i think i think that's that's a huge thing like it's it's very easy to have a strong bias towards data that you have that's available or things that are more measurable um and you know in marketing you see that a lot where where people will pump more money into digital marketing because you can measure exposure and link it to a sale you can't necessarily um understand the the causal relationship very easily but you're seeing some sales here you're not seeing some sales in tv and so you put money into where you're seeing the sales and you have you actually have no idea of whether one is more successful than, than the other, and so I think I think there are there are a few things there. There's there's one thing which which ties to what we were talking about before, which is um, you know however you want to talk about it, whether it's um, the kind of psychological safety or or the willingness to embrace failure um, that you know a lot of more modern companies that have grown very quickly have done a good job of embedding in their culture. Um, that's, that's pretty important for people to actually be able to come up there and, and be able to do data analysis properly to establish knowledge properly to say, I'm doing this thing because I think it's true and it might not be true. And this is how we're going to find out. Um, the other, the other dimension of it is, you know, it's really tied to what we were talking about earlier on about, um, you know, understanding the hierarchies of knowledge and understanding you know, understanding the biases of the knowledge that you have available to you and going, you know, look, I've got this, I've got this really rich set of data over here in the web analytics program. All this stuff's going on over here, which I can't measure or, or all this stuff's going on over here in the contact center where you've got a whole lot of phone calls coming in and the, the, you know, I'd have to spend four hours listening to phone calls to get a sense of what's going on over there. And, you know, I'm just too lazy <laughs> um, or I don't have time or whatever it is. So, um, so I think it's, I mean, it's, it's a lot like doing science. Well, it's, you know, it's understanding 
what are all the things that can help you to answer your problem and you know and being you, a skeptic when, of, of yourself and your own conclusions yeah, exactly. right yeah, yeah. yeah when you've got a data set if, if you've got that web analytics data set to really actively every time you're looking at it going what is it not telling me and try to seek some kind of answer to those that question of what is it not telling me yeah or like you know what are the strengths what are the weaknesses okay how do we combat those weaknesses with something else you know that we have access exactly. to exactly yeah it's funny because um they say you know bezos still checks his email um from customer complaints that people send him like, which is, like millions a day by the way but he'll still send uh, check the email and then if it's something that's like important maybe it can be just one complaint from one customer out of like you know a billion um, he he says that yeah that can be indicative of a huge problem that hasn't been uncovered anywhere else in the organization and he'll forward that email to with a question mark subject line to the uh, relevant department head and go and if you get one of these emails the question mark it's like you need to drop all tools and action it straight away otherwise you're fired <laughs> um, so like that's his kind of another method I mean they have access to crazy yeah. amounts of digital data that they're collecting every day but I mean you know that's just another source that maybe sample of one out of a billion but can be extremely valid uh that isn't being caught anywhere else so that's one example foxtel had this great program where there was a number you could call that that, you know it was was mostly execs using it It was a number you could call and you could just listen to the call center You, you just hear conversations going on so when you're in your car you can just dial it up and you can just have conversations just like a random conversation yeah, whoever's trying to buy Foxtel or service Foxtel at the time, they'd, they'd have that that going. That on. is cool, um, and that was that was an, you know a pretty incredible way of connecting people who otherwise wouldn't have the time for it to real customer conversations. If, is there any sort of um, that come up a lot or like traps um, just off the top of your head that you see uh, are quite common that could be really avoided um, with a basic knowledge of? you know, data collection analysis and, and decision-making. Um, you know, for me, sampling bias, we kind of just talked about that there, like data sets, like are you using convenient sample of data or, or not? Um, and then the collection method, you know, we just talked about like digital versus analog and the time trade-off there. But is there any other sort of big things that you think people should be aware of before they make the decisions? I think the biggest one I've mentioned a few times, which is the the intent in in media. So, I mean, people imagine that all media is comparable, but there's there's so much media where the opportunity to the opportunity to show media to someone to you know pay for an impression is linked to intent, and so of course they do do much much better. It's in in machine learning they call it label leakage, where you've got some label in the model which is you know it's it's real genuine label leakage when you're creating a model and the model just happens to have the sale in there as one of the things it learns from. And then it's got, you know, incredible predictive accuracy because it actually knows what's going to happen. But if you had, um, if you had, you know, an action that precedes the sale in 50% of cases in there. That isn't being labeled. um, (laughs) Yeah, that it's, you know, you've got a really strong signal in the model, which, you know, in most cases, you're not going to have it. Um, so I mean, that's probably the biggest one to think about the intent, the, the context of customer intent in trying to make comparisons and understand, you know, are, is, is, you know, if we're comparing the value that we get from this group of customers with this group of customers, are they, you know, do they have the same intent? Are they meaningfully comparable or, you know, it's the same thing for media effectively you're going, 
is this media directly comparable to this media? Yeah, well, I don't want to open the uh, attribution and marketing media mix modeling right. sort of Pandora's box here because that, that's another discussion for another day. But yeah, no, I see the same thing. It's like um, there's a natural sort of um, uh, predilection to to look at the stuff that has a, the closest correlation to the end result as opposed to maybe the upsteps that sort of led to that result. Um, so maybe, you know, that was word of mouth. Maybe it was a, a billboard ad, um, but they don't get attributed. But yet, you know, the last click is, is the one that sort of goes, oh, we should spend more money there. And I think there's this funny Tom Fishburne um, uh, quote about that uh, when someone's buying a shoe. And uh, I, I could send you that one, but it's pretty funny. What is your discipline, by the way, if you had to define it? About, about an hour ago, yeah. my wife had to put down my occupation on a form. <laughs> I, I say analyst. Okay, good. Okay, that, that covers quite a few bases. So uh, maybe maybe just um, keep that general thought. Um, you can sort of answer this however you want. But what is it about your professional area of discipline that a lot of people believe, the majority believe, but you know to be wrong? I think if we're to say, I don't think the majority of people believe this, but I think the majority of people in the discipline believe this. And it's that that people pay attention to ads that um that you know ads are an active message that people receive and understand and engage with and um you know you see people viewing the viewing the first cut of their um of their tv ad in a cinema on a big screen <laughs> like, like that's not how it works people just kind of maybe notice maybe and you know you're lucky and um I mean, I think it's pretty clear if you if you look at any data, or even if you just think about yourself as a human being and how you engage with ads, that um, you actually don't care about most ads no, and stuff you see. No, yeah. no, it's very no. fleeting sort of moments of yeah. of, of attention yeah. that you that you may get or may not. But yeah, yeah people don't really care it. about your brand. <laughs> they talk about advertising being. I think it's Andrew Amberg. Talk about advertising being a a gentle nudging force that you know. It's like just remind me that you exist what are some books that you've read recently or in the past um, about what we're talking about today that you really really recommend people read the karen nelson fields the attention economy is a really good summary of, of understanding the difference between different forms of advertising and the value of one impression against another impression a really useful thing in in being able to understand the being able to make sense of the gaps in knowledge that you have. So you've got this, this really hard, clear data source like your web analytics where it tells you exactly what some users did. Um, and then you've got this much fuzzier data source of you know, actually speaking to some people about how they make decisions in their home and how they talk about it with their partner or their family or whatever. In order to be able to piece those things together, you've got you know, very different the data is very different. You've got something pretty fuzzy and something pretty defined. And so there's a lot of uncertainty in one. There's a lot of certainty in another, but it's certainty that tells you a very narrow scope and uncertainty tells you a very broad scope. And being comfortable with uncertainty, like being comfortable with mixing data of different levels of uncertainty and, and being able to piece that together, that's what I think is really important to be able to be a, you know, a really, really mature um, analyst. No, it's funny you say that because um, that's the approach I take when I do workshops and I go this nine areas of strategy, you know, one of which is comms or promotions. Um, and I have different levels. Um, and maybe it's a basic level, very early maturity organization, 
starting out or maybe doesn't have um, haven't been operating very long or don't have very good staff. And I, I would say, look, at the beginning of that, we're just making more assumptions because we don't have something to rely on that could prove us, you know, right or wrong. And then it's sort of there's a continuum from there to then something where you actually we've proven this with this data set, with that over time, we know that to be very true or like hard to dispute and and i think that that's sort of like where i see the maturity of of the workshop and then i sort of like tailor it that way so, so the things that i the things that i look at that i look at quite often is um you know both editions of how brands grow are, are really good you know going back to them just read a, a specific chapter i mean for me you you start to understand how much of how many things in business are just proportional to market share and yes function of market share. yes and so that massively changes, you know, how you understand a lot of problems. Not very popular, though, in a lot of immature marketing organizations, I would say. Your job as a marketer or as a creative is much, much more exciting if those books are wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and so I think there's a natural bias to go towards, towards their wrong. And I think those books in particular, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's, it's highly unusual for a field that far from you know the hard scientists to be proposing that there are laws and um you know i think i think that's a it's a bit of a quirk that sets them up to go you you know you can find lots of exceptions to laws and kind of poke holes like that Um, it doesn't necessarily um counter the idea that you've got some some pretty general sort of macro patterns, macro which, effects that are pretty replicable yeah, yeah, yeah. across all yeah. sectors all segments all products yeah, yeah. So, some things that tend to be true and yeah. your starting point should be that's probably true rather than it's probably not mm. i think a lot of people can poke fun at the, the law side of it they're, yeah so they're, they're both pretty great i found something which which influenced me quite a lot it's not something that i keep coming back to but it's something that sort of changed how how I thought about a lot of things. It's this book called Ordinary Cities. Ooh. And so so what it is, like the, the, the general thrust of the book is that in urban research in particular, people tend to write about the exceptional cities. So a lot of people write about LA and um, you know the the road networks in LA and you know for a time LA was going to be the city that all other cities were modeled on you know they weren't going to have trains and, and you know so this, this is Jennifer networks, Robinson really right yeah, yeah yeah okay you know there, there are a lot of these cities that kind of are exceptional cities that get that get written about all the time and that really sort of brought home that you know, it happens in everything. It's the exceptions that get written. It's like about. the edge case, the survivorship bias kind of thing. Yeah, which yeah, is very yeah, sellable yeah. as a story. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the most interesting stories are not the most normal stories, and um, and having an understanding of that, I think, I think is really, it's really, really useful. Okay, that's great. Okay, what about a piece of tech um, that you can't do without? Um, is there some kind of like hardware or software that helps you do you know this sort of job better um, that you'd recommend other people use? The first one that comes to mind is a it's a funny one. I've been using it for about 10 years. It's a little Chrome extension called ObservePoint Tag Debugger. And what it does is it it just watches all the marketing tags that fire off on any website and it um, it tells you where they're going and and you can click on them and get all the breakdowns of all the variables that's sending. Okay, what about favorite favorite website um, that you'd recommend people use or go to? Towards data science is is really big. You know, it's it's there are a lot of really really good articles. 
towards datascience.com. What about, you know, a plug for, for what you're doing? Maybe you have a commercial interest for, or a blog or a podcast or something. Um, what do you want to sort of promote? I don't have, I don't have a personal blog or, or a podcast. Current or employer to get some brownie points. Current, so. current employer, current employer is where it's going. So luxury, luxury escapes do a whole, do sort of a wide range of, of travel, but you know, the, the core of what they've done and, and, you know, probably what's what's most exciting to, you know, the kind of people who listen to what you've got to say is um, they do incredible deals to, um, to like, premium locations, like premium resorts, so like heavily discounted, like 50% off or something to, you know, to the Maldives of, of Fiji or um, Bali or, or Phuket, like to the kind of holiday where you don't come back feeling like you need a holiday you come back rested and i think they've got a lot of them um and so you know so i've joined luxury escapes because you know, it's a pretty exciting time to join the the travel industry you know as um you know as a slight gamble in it i feel pretty confident that we're coming out of this pandemic well, it can't get much worse can it <laughs> it can't it can't get much worse i think I think it's getting better and better from Speaking here. Speaking about halo and, effects um, and correlation, you know, your um, yeah. your performance is going to go really well, I think, in the next couple of years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I expect so. That's the plan. And if I have any influence over it, um, it certainly will. And what about um, if anyone is really interested in, in what you were talking about today and, you know, want to ask you some more questions, uh, what's the best method of contact or, or some way people can approach you? Um, the best way would be to get in touch through LinkedIn. So, um, so Willem. There aren't many. There aren't many Willem Parlings in the world. Um, and how do you spell it? W i double l w i double l e m p a l i n g. Okay, great. Um, and formerly IAG Cartology, now at Luxury Escapes. In case people That's find right. two of you, which is unlikely great okay well look i just want to thank you for your time i think it was a really good discussion um about you know segmentation analysis data usage and and targeting so it's a, an area that i really want to to cover because i've already done two on positioning which is i would argue probably the next step which is you know getting your product and packaging and positioning that at, at these certain segments um so there's a, a connection between you know your offering and and you know a valid portion of the entire market so um obviously that sets you up for success so um, you know, it can be a dry area, but I think you really encapsulated, you know, some do's and don'ts and some approaches that everyone can learn from. So thanks for your time and um, let's, let's keep talking. Thanks, John. Cheers. Been amazing. So that was another one of our deep dives into the nine areas of growth strategy. In this case, finishing off the other half of the SDP or Segmentation Targeting Positioning Strategy module. And I'm really conscious of how different this is for different businesses, but hopefully you'll get a good general grounding in how to approach this topic regardless of the context. And one of these nine modules is data or what I'd call measurement strategy. So this episode effectively doubles as like an entry into that can of worms too. I'll be interviewing one more person on measurement where we can go a bit deeper into attribution and marketing measurement, which is really the critical feedback loop behind a lot of business growth. So this was episode two of season three. And don't worry, there'll be lots more coming as we dive deeper into mostly growth channel specialist episodes from now on. We've now covered all of the nine to some extent, except for sales strategy, which is next. Our next episode though is on mergers and acquisitions in the context of a growth lever with an ex-finance slash M&A specialist who's now running his own startup. So there's lots of work to go and thanks again for following. 
As always, if you have any feedback or comments, make sure to DM me on LinkedIn, tag me on Twitter, etc. A dose of John is my Twitter handle or the official John James is my LinkedIn. Otherwise, you can find me on Instagram under Champagne Society. And remember to give me a follow to receive notifications on your podcast, listening app, review me, whatever. Otherwise, I'll be uploading the full episodes on YouTube in the coming weeks. But that's all for now. Thanks for listening.